Uh, well, I'm pleased to uh, have the, the job of introducing the keynote session and uh, Tuesday's keynote speaker, Dr. Dr. Niall Keane, who is Head of Department uh, at Mary Immaculate College in Philosophy at the University of Limerick. Uh, Niall is the co-author of the Gadamer Dictionary and co-editor of the Companion to Hermeneutics. He's also published widely on Husserl and Heidegger, Gadamer and Michel Henry, and he's treasurer of the Irish uh, Phenomenological Circle as well. And uh, as was the case yesterday, Niall is going to speak to us, uh, and then he's going to be responded to by uh, Todd May, who is the head of philosophy here at the University of Kent, uh, and has published uh, two monographs, I believe, one on uh, land and the given economy, and uh, another on Heidegger work and being. Uh, so... Niall's going to speak for about 45 minutes, and then we'll have a, a, a session of uh, Todd responding, and then Niall gets to respond to that, and then we'll open it to questions from the floor. And Niall's uh, paper is entitled Metaphysics and Nihilism. So Great, thank you, thank you. Thanks, Keith. Let me start just by uh, thanking the executive committee of the BSP, specifically Keith, Matt, Ross, who's not here now, and David for the invitation. Just to say it's an honour to be part of this, I hope my contribution will be worthy of the invitation and that it will continue a conversation uh, which started for me when I attended the BSP 17 years ago in 2001. Um, 17 years ago I heard a paper on Heidegger Hegel and the problem of nothingness. And hopefully my paper today will in fact neither amount to the eternal return of the same nor a much ado about nothing. Um, before starting, I'd also like to thank Todd May uh, for reading and responding to this paper, and I look forward to hearing your thoughts, Todd. Uh, so let me begin. Um, nihilism, in terms of a, a definition, I think it's good to start with a, a more accessible definition. So nihilism is, I would like to claim, a situation of radical disorientation and disenchantment, which takes hold when traditional reference points, the ideals, truths, norms and values that guide acting well lose their solidity and instructive force. At the end of the 19th century, the issue and experience of nihilism erupted in post-idealist and post-positivistic consciousness and threatened the very enterprise of philosophy in its search for explanatory causes and generalizable truths and maxims. This interruption, or I, uh, I should say this eruption, extended tragically and catastrophically to the First and Second World Wars, um, in which the apparently rational and moral propensities of Western philosophy and culture clashed with barbarism and cruelty. The clash called into question the sense of the world and the solidity of the values and truths found therein, and how their significance no longer continued to obtain. In short, nihilism is the experience of negativity and nothingness, the loss of a fixed center, as Nietzsche put it, and the disintegration of a unified image of the world. Philosophically speaking, the issue that needed addressing, however, was not simply the unfortunate emergence of nihilism as a betrayal of the original Greek idea of rationality a la Husserl, but rather that nihilism itself was arguably a historical determination of Western culture and philosophy. Thus, it was necessary to examine nihilism as the most pressing and unsettling question for Western philosophy and as potentially having issued from Western philosophy itself. In the following, I will attempt to do so by 
analyzing two analogous but distinct approaches to nihilism and metaphysics, namely Martin Heidegger's and Ernst Jünger's approaches. I do so with the intention of relating the issue of nihilism directly to metaphysical reflections on actuality, possibility, and nothingness, and not by contrasting the poison of nihilism to the antidote of metaphysics. One document, which is perhaps more like a center of activity for this concern than a mere historical document, is a colloquium on the essence of nihilism which took place in the 1950s between Martin Heidegger and Ernst Jünger. It is safe to say, I think, that these two figures stand out as 20th century emblems of the interpretive labor expended on the question of nihilism, picking up on the indications of Nietzsche, who had in fact not only diagnosed the phenomenon of nihilism, but also contributed to the distillation of the experience itself. The principal interventions during the colloquium were already indirectly prepared for in the 1930s in Ernst Jünger's essay, Across the Line, which was dedicated to Heidegger on his 60th birthday in 1949, and subsequently in Heidegger's 1955 essay entitled Concerning the Line, later retitled On the Question of Being. This text was dedicated to Jünger on his 60th birthday in 1955. Now, this particular text has been the subject of much discussion when it comes to understanding Heidegger's emergence from a decade-long and contentious struggle with Nietzsche and Hölderlin. In Heidegger's essay on the question of being, one finds yet another interpretation of Western metaphysics in terms of the occlusion of the historicality of being, of the Platonic idea as the prefiguration of Nietzsche's will to power, culminating in the metaphysical determination of the will to power in terms of the technical ordering and mobilization of beings on a planetary scale. Again, we find Heidegger's insistence on the metaphysical tendency to fix or order being in some transcendental or transcendent topos, rather than on understanding being in terms of its intrinsic self-hiddenness or self-retracting essence. Let's say a little bit more about that. This is precisely what is, according to Heidegger, concealed from metaphysical understanding or from the metaphysical understanding of being, which we are told by Heidegger favors the enduring unhiddenness of beings in their simple self-presence. To make matters worse and to infuriate those who seek simple lines of argument, in the 1950 text, Heidegger challenges our understanding of the word being by crossing it out or even putting a, a double strike through the word, um, which is the first emergence of perhaps writing under erasure. Um, and it's his attempt to indicate that being appears and shows up in as much as it is no thing. It is because metaphysics continues to miss the appearance of what is inapparent that the problem of nihilism is most acute. Beyond the rational and spiritual tendency of an epoch and its catastrophic crises, and subsequently it is brought to bear on our understanding of the relationship between being, the human being, and things. The fact that Heidegger's reflections on nihilism were elaborated in conversation with Jünger is no mere accident. Both had a special kinship with Nietzsche's writings on nihilism and metaphysics. But what is more interesting is how the encounter with Jünger allowed Heidegger to look back on his own way through the history of philosophy and to understand his insistence on radicality through the evidential self-givenness of a nihilistic epoch as described by Jünger. However, Jünger's text across the line should not be understood simply as a jumping off point in the discussion before Heidegger takes the topic to new philosophical heights. If anything, it is necessary to read these two texts and two authors together so that one can verify whether Heidegger's responses are in fact up to the task of understanding the culture that Jünger sees as the most extreme expression 
or symptom of nihilism. The question that emerges over the course of the discussion is how is it possible to recognize and think through the issue of nihilism from within nihilism itself? From what perspective can nihilism be evaluated? From the beginning of their discussion, it is clear that neither Junger nor Heidegger believed that nihilism could come, sorry, that nihilism could become conscious of itself by means of a rational standing back in order to apprehend and assess it neutrally. Rather, what is put forward by both is the very possibility of an indirect glimpse of nihilism from within nihilism. Hence, this newfound attentiveness to crisis, the glimpse of nihilism from within nihilism, is a looking nihilism in the face, a coming to terms with nihilism as an ineluctable historical metaphysical phenomenon. If it were otherwise, what these two authors would be engaging in would be a critique of nihilism as a merely scholastic enterprise. The questions they ask are the following. Is it possible to articulate and address the question of nihilism from within nihilism? And from where does one begin to pose this question and to whom? And what experiences can we use as a guide? Their responses to these questions follow two different, albeit analogous, trajectories. For Junger, the path of nihilism comes down to a symptomatic anamnesis, which can be addressed by a quasi-therapeutic diagnosis and prognosis. To define nihilism, then, one must, according to Junger, move from one way of understanding nihilism and towards an understanding of the genesis of the pathology, which, remain, which means recovering from it by considering it a normal condition, normalzustand, he says. A normal condition that offers us an opportunity of a new spiritual and material direction. Thus, reworking Nietzsche, Junger favors a transvaluation of values that realizes itself as the corruption of an order of health that is for the sake of a more productive health, a creative metamorphosis into a new organic and vital state, leading to a new and organic vital reality. Some of the most interesting aspects of Junger's descriptions hinge on his diagnosis of nihilism, as I said, in terms of normality rather than disorder, a normality that is completely organized, ordered, and urbanized. It is no longer associated with the chaos of a degenerate <coughs> reason, but with the reductive excesses of order, function, and efficiency. For Junger, then, the response to nihilism no longer entails good or bad conscience, or the choice between good and evil, activity versus passivity, but rather what he calls the habituated virtue of a strong interiority, which is, according to him, the condition of a free response to nihilism. In this sense, Junger embodies his self-defined anarch, the sovereign individual underpinning his thought, which is no mere anarchism or vulgar individualism, but rather a free and self-regulating anarchic thinker or poet. The detached, what he calls the detached individual, the great lonely figure who was able to resist in conditions difficult for the spirit, in the quote. This detached individual is defined according to Junger, by commitment, by patience, and by solitude, expressing an indifference to power and ideology, and as such, operating outside social and national party structures. If you know anything about Junger, that was his own response to national socialism at the time. Through the turn, then, from the pathology to the physiology of nihilism, one searches for causes, but only finds symptoms. Thus, for Junger, causes remain hidden, um, and because of this, any description of the symptoms must in fact proceed in the hope that we may not only get to the heart of the problem, 
but also that we may be able to transform the problem into a new, what he calls a new natural causality, which would be, for him, post-nihilistic. Thus, the most evident symptom of nihilism in the world are, for Junger, its self-presentation as a world increasingly reduced to its order, its function, consummation, and areas of narrow specialization. And because of this, a sort of atrophy of the world takes place. And for Junger, this is true of all fields of research, ethics and aesthetics, economics and politics, psychology and religion. This atrophy asserts itself in the accelerated form of the mobilized and functional nature of the labor process, what Junger terms in 1930, total mobilization, which emerges as the symbol of the worker's form, or gestalt, and the means in which the worker's form reduces the world to the utility of raw materials in which one loses oneself. The claim is that this reductive process has been accelerated and put to work with great effect and has caused qualitative differences to become leveled down and ultimately atrophied, atrophied. For Junger, what we have is the transformation of the human being into worker, which is one of the most pronounced symbols of nihilism. <coughs> we are faced increasingly with a mechanical and automated world, and with, with that, the depersonalization and dehumanization of the social and political spheres. The, moder the modern administered society is thus the zenith of nihilism for Junger. Processes without principles, movement without aim, and measurability without wonder. Spiritually, says Junger, we are arriving at the line or at the limit, or perhaps we have already crossed it. But he talks about translinium. Yet starting from within nihilism, there surely emerges a new possibility, a redemption of sorts, which is not the myopic transformation of the present condition or a returning to an idealized previous condition, but rather a resistance to the present condition. At, bo at bottom, Junger's hope is to begin with a new vision that takes its start from a lack that cannot be filled or expunged. For Junger, this lack can only be experienced through what he terms the productive force of pain or suffering. This is the only thing we can do, he says, the only response we can offer. He likens this response, famously, to marching in the desert in the hope of finding new wellsprings from which the human being can draw and subsequently resist what he calls the Leviathan, and in so doing, to potentially reconquer an original and lost ground. This is what Junger calls, poetically, it must be said, the anarchic forest, uh, the wild earth or wilderness, wildness, which is the condition of our redemption from and resistance to nihilism. He introduces these oases of freedom in the desert of nihilism by means of three fundamental experiences or expressions of what he calls the authentic heart. One, mortality lived without fear. Two, Eros as the free space of love, which is not dominated by power. And three, friendship, a philia, as an unpredictable, extraordinary and consoling rapport that exceeds the human being while restoring hope to humanity. In these oases, then, the above consoling or poetic cells of hope, power and technology are not negated, but are, in fact, redeemed. Yet if there is redemption in these oases, exactly who or what is saved? 
Junger broaches this question only to accentuate the decisive need to transform the nothing into an original determination of beings. Thanks to this reflection, what we have then is a renewed attention to the ontological question, or to intending what is really real, but not as the other of nothingness. This seems, however, to be more of a promise than a prognosis in my interpretation, in which hope can be nourished, in which hope can be nourished by the bonds of love and friendship, in which these oases can be cultivated and not swallowed up by the expanse of desert. Of, of desert. As such, for Junger, the immense power of the nothing is to be transformed into something like the grace of being experienced collectively as what saves us from nihilism and yet saves us from within a type of, what he says, a completed nihilism. Hence, what allows us to resist nihilism and cultivate hope is itself the last phase of completed nihilism before it's overcome translinium. Unsurprisingly, however, when Heidegger interprets Junger's essay across the line, he starts with a reflection on the preposition über, translatable as either across or concerning, and he assesses the pitfalls involved in Junger's language and, unsurprisingly, the medical and diagnostic style of his text. Contrary to Junger's crossing the line or moving across the line, Heidegger's main aim is the line itself. And he writes, and I quote, in the title of your essay, Uber de Linie, the Uber means as much as across, trans, meta. By contrast, the following remarks, Heidegger's own remarks, understand the Uber only in the sense of de in Latin or peri in Greek. They deal with the line itself, ad lineum, with the zone of self-consummating nihilism, end of quote. Predictably enough, Heidegger argues always provisionally, he kind of reminds us that his response is always a provisional response, he argues against Junger that nihilism cannot be overcome by means of a new subjective stance and that the question of nihilism must be brought back to the ontological question and to the Western metaphysical definition of being a nothing. Heidegger writes, and let me just quote this at length, it'll be the only long quotation. Heidegger writes, I quote, with regard to the essence of nihilism, there is no prospect and can be no meaningful claim to healing. And yet your text, Junger's text, maintains the stance of a doctor as indicated by its division into prognosis, diagnosis, and therapy. Healing can only itself, sorry, Healing can concern itself only with the malevolent consequences and threatening phenomena that accompany this planetary process. An awareness and knowledge of the cause, of the essence of nihilism, are all the more urgently needed. Thinking is indeed all the more urgently, sorry, thinking is indeed all the more urgently, granted that an adequate experience of this essence can be prepared only in a responsive thinking. Yet, in the same measure that the possibilities of an immediately effective healing disappear, the capability for thought has also already been diminished. The essence of nihilism is neither healable nor unhealable, he says. It is the unhealable, and yet, as such, a unique pointer towards the salutary. So if thinking is to approach the essence of nihilism, it must necessarily become more provisional. 
and thereby become other. Yeah, end of quote. You'd be happy to hear. Yet what does this mean concretely? Heidegger's language is, I must confess, elusive, and any attempt to map these words onto a phenomenologically describable experience is extremely difficult, at least for me. In essence, the paradox of nihilism appears to stem from the manner of its self-givenness or the manner of its self-presentation. And it forces us to ask how we can be saved from nihilism from within nihilism. For Junger, the meaning of such a question lies in its preparing the way for the moving beyond nihilism by means of training the conscious mind to be an instrument of redemption. That's his own quote, training the conscious mind to be an instrument of redemption. While for Heidegger, it appears to be more about a transformative, non-subjective and non-voluntaristic return to nihilism without ever being able to overcome it. So it's about a return to the world um, with a new orientation towards things and towards the world in the first place. So Heidegger's problem is that of understanding nihilism or understanding what nihilism hides within itself, its essence and the realization of its essence. I should say that Heidegger is not interested in a definition of nihilism. He's not interested in what nihilism is. That's a metaphysical question. He's interested in how nihilism is experienced. How is it given? It's a manner of experience. Um, uh, so when he talks about the essence of nihilism, he's not actually talking about the essence in a metaphysical sense of a quiditas or something, but rather the, the, the question of how it's given. However, before one can broach the question of overcoming nihilism, surely one must address, according to Heidegger, its localization. The completion of nihilism, the actualization of nihilism, is not simply a process that is realized, a movement that fulfills itself according to its own internal possibilities, but rather a place in which we find ourselves insofar as we are human. It is, in the end, like everything else for Heidegger, an ontological space which needs reconceiving, the space of the co-belonging, of being and nothingness, of being and the human being. One is hence not confronted here with a simple hermeneutic situation. On the contrary, nihilism claims, on the contrary, nihilism, Heidegger claims, is only possible insofar as it finds a space for its self-presentation or its self-givenness in the human being. Therefore, the essence of nihilism is something non-nihilistic. And as Heidegger point, uh, puts it, I quote, it points us towards the realm that, dem that demands a different vocabulary. So already to address nihilism means that we have to start thinking in a different key, as he says, thinking in a different tonality, and we need a different vocabulary for actually going to talk about what the essence of nihilism is and, and so far as it gives itself. Um, because of this, so that we need a different vocabulary, because of this description, phenomenological description, which needs an impartial distance <coughs> to do its describing, um, can never arrive at what Junger calls the essential zero point line or zero meridian, insofar as the one, who, the one doing the describing already inhabits it. In short, the essence of nihilism goes to the very heart of who we are as human beings and how what it means to be human has been shaped metaphysically. And by the metaphysical assumption, that nothingness is the mere empty negation of being instead of what Heidegger calls positively the nihilation of the nothing. The nihilation of the nothing versus simply nothing as being's empty other. So, in a nutshell, the essence of nihilism 
consists in not taking the nothing seriously. The essence of nihilism for Heidegger consists in that, that we haven't taken the nothing seriously. This for Heidegger is Nietzsche's great aporia. The affirmation of the will to power is not the way out of nihilism, but is rather its definitive triumph. Both the greatest possible forgetting of the essence of nihilism, that not taking the nothing seriously, and its greatest manifestation in the form of a volitional subjectivism. As Heidegger claims, Nietzsche is the last great metaphysician as an active nihilist, because he defines himself in the will to power as, I quote, the first perfect nihilist of Europe, the one who experienced nihilism and took nihilism all the way down. In reality for Heidegger, nihilism has not been taken all the way down. In fact, it is incompletable in one sense of the term because it belongs so centrally to who we are and to metaphysics itself, to that very field which it is trying to overpower. Thus, being as fullness, the solidity of values, the unshakable nature of truth, God and the I, cannot be overcome in the name of nihilism. If anything, their transvaluation by means of an act of nihilism passes through and in fact re reinforces the forgetting of their birthplace in metaphysics itself. So for Heidegger, the transvaluation of all values possesses the same logic of an evaluative thought model. Its reasons, its language, and its intentionality have simply been, been inverted and confirmed. And Heidegger feels the same about Junger's attempts to cross the line or to push beyond nihilism insofar as it remains within the language of metaphysics from rationalism to a creative and heroic subjectivism, metaphysical poles to which nihilism belongs. And yet, what about Heidegger's own response to the problem? Well, his claim is that being is, in essence, this is a complicated story, and it sounds a little bit unorthodox and sounds a little bit odd, but the claim is that being is, in essence, withdrawing. Not that being does something called withdrawing once in a while that it might otherwise not do, but that the definition of being is withdrawing. With this claim that being is, in essence, withdrawing, Heidegger is trying to claim that the withdrawing takes place in order to render things in the world that show up as meaningful intelligible. And that being has become no thing in its withdrawing. So not taking the nothing seriously is simply about, for Heidegger, trying to reconceive the nature of the nothing, not as an empty negation, empty dialectical opposite of being, but in fact that being is withdrawing, and hence being is no thing. Not an empty nothing, but being is no thing. With this, Heidegger intends to turn the tables on metaphysics and on the privilege metaphysics has accorded to actuality. He will thus go on to say that what has, since Aristotle, been taken to be the absolute priority of actuality or presence is, in fact, the ominous sign of an unopposed withdrawal of being as no thing. Yet, as I mentioned above, this no thing is not a simple dialectical negation that is exhausted in its relation to entities and hence becomes invisible and withdrawn. 
Nothingness is not the opposite of being. It is not an empty void, but instead belongs to the positive essence of being itself. Hence the need to put the question of the nothing, insofar as it determines the human being, at the centre of his analysis, and to examine the essence of nihilism as a metaphysical ontological problem. In my interpretation, it is here that Heidegger makes the most decisive move, not unproblematic, but the most decisive move, by claiming that the empty nihilistic nothing is the nothing of metaphysics. Yet this metaphysical nothing contains traces, he claims, of a pre-metaphysical relation to being, in which being, as crossed out, is given as a, withdraw as a withdrawing appeal that strikes the human being nonetheless. So something withdraws, being, sorry, I should say, being is withdrawing. In its withdrawing, it allows entities to be seen, used, experienced, uh, 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 and to become intelligible. But in this withdrawing, um, it strikes the human being as having withdrawn. So it makes itself felt, but not as an object, but not as an empty opposite to what being is. The essence of nihilism, then, is thus precisely the missing of this withdrawing of being, such that this withdrawing is easily forgotten or covered over. Heidegger's further point is that this forgetting is far from a cultural or psychological phenomenon. It is rather metaphysical through and through. So when it comes to what Heidegger terms the forgetting of nihilism, or when it comes to what Heidegger calls the forgetting of forgetting, nihilism is not strictly speaking the forgetting of being, but the forgetting um, that it is, in essence, withdrawing. That being is, in essence, withdrawing. Challenging, then, the metaphysical ontology as having forgotten this positive or productive withdrawing, Heidegger calls for the dismantling of this tradition from within as a way of discovering its most intimate ground or possibility. Denied to metaphysical thinking, due to its fascination with presence and actuality, and ultimately with the conceptual mastery over presence and actuality. In all of these undertakings, Heidegger wants us to come to see one basic fact, that the innermost possibility of thinking did not exhaust itself in that to which it gave rise at the beginning of metaphysics. What this amounts to is the following. Something is possible that does not quite fit the metaphysical picture of possibility as subordinate to actuality. So again, something is possible that does not quite fit the metaphysical picture of possibility as subordinate to actuality. Now, in a letter dated the 18th of December 1950, Heidegger praises Ernst Jünger's essay across the line, claiming that, and I quote, the spirit that was already active in the worker, the 1930 text by Jünger, is now purified, its vision widened, allowing Jünger, he claims, to bring that work once again to the consciousness of an age. He then identifies what he sees as the metaphysical kernel of Jünger's claim in the following sentence. I quote, Heidegger, the moment in which the line is passed brings a new turning approach, subwendung uh, of being. So the minute, the moment in which the line is passed brings a new turning approach of being. Again, he writes, must we not, in order to respond to the essence of being, at the same time say, 
the line is first passable in the moment instigated by being in its turning approach, which turning approach is first an awakening and an eventful addressing of the essence of man. The turning approach is just his other way of saying that being is withdrawing. If so, crossing the line of nihilism is less an advance than an overtaking by what saves, whose beyond first genuinely illuminates the line for this very crossing over. This claim amounts to favoring a zone or a kind of topos of nihilism, where being and nothingness interconnect, which the later Heidegger will symbolize once again by putting an X through the word sein, or spelling it with a Y or putting a double strike through. So this new dedication to being, which Junger talks about, is also possible for Heidegger. Although not by going beyond metaphysics, or heroically across the line, but by returning to metaphysics, by reflecting on it, and by taking up its essence. Returning here would mean moving towards the locality, the locality being the forgetting of being as withdrawing. Um, moving towards the locality from which metaphysics emerges. Thus the possibility of recovering from metaphysics and by extension recovering from nihilism lies in what Heidegger calls going back to Plato, remembering or recollecting uh, tra uh, the translation of anamnesis um, in terms of andenken. So what he's insisting that this new type of thinking is not andenken über something, but it's ein Denken an. It's like a thinking after something that's already taken place, not thinking about a certain set of um, issues. This type of remembering or recollecting, which tries then to respond to this constitutive withdrawing of being, belongs to the essence of being itself. This type of thinking is a responding to the withdrawing of being, which belongs constitutively to being. It is hence no longer a thing called being, which does something called withdrawing, but rather the withdrawing is being, and as such, being and nothing are said to be one and the same by Heidegger. So being and nothing, not identical, but the same. Important distinction he makes. In this back and forth of being and nothing, Heidegger addresses the need to think the interwovenness of being and nothingness, and the conflict that issues forth from this interwovenness beyond every distinction between positivity and negativity. Heidegger is affirming that the co-belonging of being and nothingness signals primarily and above all the need to rethink being as finite and not simply reductively contrasting being with its symmetric empty opposite, nothing, emptiness, void. Borrowing from Nietzsche and Hölderlin, Heidegger claims that in order to reflect on the above-mentioned interwovenness, thinking must become song. If that doesn't bring a tear to your eye, nothing will, right? Thinking must become song that responds to what cannot be possessed or owned. One is not dealing here with an attempt then to make nothingness into a goal. Right? It's not like the new goal of philosophy is this adoration of nothingness. So it's not making nothingness into a goal that would allow one to overcome a phase of kind of pessimistic passive nihilism and replace it with a kind of an active and reactive one, uh, an overcoming that would furnish mankind with a new orientation for the will, a la Junger, 
Nothingness understood thusly is simply another form of metaphysical orientation via the logic of presence, that is, something is taken as an explanatory entity that gives an underlying stability to other entities or to the movement of other entities. It could be said that Heidegger is here challenging the process of secularization, in which the autonomous thinker becomes both the saved and the agent doing the saving. For Heidegger, in his response to Jünger and to nihilism, the human being cannot save itself. I think he's metaphysical here, and that's, I'm, I'm going to make that claim. So, the human being cannot save itself, but exists as if, in this very impossibility, there is contained its salvation. As such, Christianity, for Heidegger, is not something that needs to be secularized. It is simply something that has become impossible. In following Heidegger's discussions, of, in discussions with Jünger, one can detect a deep structural affinity between the two, especially via Jünger's description of nihilism and his analysis of hope. However, Jünger's previously mentioned oases in the desert represent for Heidegger not the movement beyond nihilism, but rather an extreme and complete dominance of nihilism, insofar as Jünger remains intent on developing a type of authentic subjective interiority, a kind of impassibility, which can resist the lures of power and technology. In a note to a text, Gesamtes Gaba 90, dedicated to Jünger, in a note to Gesamtes Gaba 90, Heidegger writes, Jünger's descriptions and his explanations achieve only this, indicating being by showing beings in the character of the will to power without questioning this being. For Heidegger, what is indicated in this description, or in the descriptions found in Jünger's The Worker, is a continuous analysis of the work character of the world, the work character of the way the human being deals with the world, to the work character of our ways of speaking about that world. This circular course, which Heidegger claims remains trapped in the consummation of modern metaphysics, confronts us with the work character of the entirety of beings that being can be put to work um, without understanding how being, in essence, is given as no thing, as withdrawing. However, the question arises why, according to Heidegger, Jünger only points to the question of being without questioning it. He is, Heidegger claims, of Jünger, to quote Heidegger again, the one who recognizes being, but is in no way a thinker. So, so Jünger indicates, recognizes something about being, but is as yet not there as a thinker. Backhanded compliment. <laughs> Maybe not so backhanded. However, we could just as well claim that Jünger's descriptions of a technological era show us something deeply important about the essence of the modern age, its work character and its work process, and thus about being itself. But for Heidegger, the question of being is no longer the metaphysical question what beings as such are, and does not end up in the metaphysical description of the being of beings, will to power or total mobilization as the beingness of beings. Heidegger's ontological question asks after being itself, the meaning and truth and topos of being. And according to Heidegger, Jünger only indicates being by showing the will to power of beings, 
but does not discern the modern metaphysics, which is at the basis of his own position. He claims that Junger misses the relation between the essence of the subjectivity of the human being and the essence of the will to power as the continual drive towards increased power and the self-affirmation of power as an end in itself. Yet, from the confrontation with Junger, Heidegger learned, I would like to claim, that every overcoming of the metaphysics of the will to power is doomed, so long as it is characterized by a purely volitional attitude. The will is absorbed in the circular course, moving from the work character of the world to the work character of the human being in dealing with the world, the circular course which indicates the end of metaphysics, or the completion of metaphysics, in the sense of the vollendung of metaphysics. To put it differently, Heidegger learned from Junger that the overcoming of the metaphysics of the will to power requires a moving within metaphysics and not a move towards another type of philosophical thinking altogether, one which is no longer characterized by the will. So my claim is previously in the 1930s, he does set up a first beginning and another beginning. Through his encounter with Junger, he realizes that there is a naivety built into the very language of other beginning. And what you get from Heidegger then is a return to metaphysics in an attempt to kind of dismantle metaphysics by staying with metaphysical problems, disturbing metaphysical problems from within. When Heidegger realized this, that overcoming is impossible, he began to advocate more explicitly a break with volitional thinking, which in my interpretation is the identification of a newfound leeway between one type of thinking, metaphysics, and its absolute other. In his later work, Heidegger speaks about the willing of non-willing, or the willing to non-willing, about a non-willing way of philosophical thinking, precisely because the volitional attitude remains itself the main barrier to an experience of being as no thing, as withdrawing. The experience of being demands a reconceiving of the concept of the will, and demands a different beginning, or a different logic uh, for philosophical reflection. And when it comes to this other beginning, which I just mentioned, for philosophical reflection, Heidegger writes in the Contributions to Philosophy which is from the 1930s, that it is necessary, I quote, because only the greatest occurrence, the intimate event, can still save us from our lostness in the bustle of mere incidents and machinations. So this idea can only save us from our, from, uh, our lostness in the bustle of mere incidents and machinations. The salvation that Heidegger speaks of here, which is a response to nihilism from within nihilism, is for Heidegger the transition to a way of being and acting that contains within itself the possibility of an experience of being which has not been hitherto possible. That Heidegger bids farewell to volitional metaphysical thought does not mean he is opting for a resigned acquiescence, for to do so would equally cause us to lose contact with being and acquiescence itself would be a form of metaphysical thinking, just you know, giving up on, on thinking. Consequently, he is concerned with the right way to get into the circle, to move imminently within the circle of the will to power and representation, and at the same time to resist and critique it, to experience being at its center. So, Heidegger calls upon his readers to dismantle this tradition from within as a way of discovering its most intimate ground of possibility, denied to metaphysical thinking due to its obsession with presence, actuality, and, a, and conceptual mastery. This term, Herrschaft, comes up in Heidegger in, in, in the 40s and 50s about 
the dominion or dominance over some metaphysical thinking is, is itself a domineering type of controlling, fixing, calculating type of thought. In this regard, Heidegger's many courses, lecture courses, and readings in the history of philosophy, uh, history of metaphysics, are nothing but explorations of these echoes and traces of this ground on the level of what presents itself as doctrinal content, metaphysical doctrinal content. In all of these undertakings, he wants us to come to see one basic fact, at least one basic fact, that the innermost possibility of the history of philosophy did not exist, did not exhaust itself in that to which it gave rise in the first metaphysical beginning. So thinking has not exhausted itself in this first pass. His goal then is to think what metaphysics cannot think. Right. To do so, and to do so in the foundational works and actions that give, that give beings and the human beings their meaning in relation to the world and to what exceeds them in the world. This task or this ultimate imperative that we finally think being out of being, proceeding not from mere opinion and from the experience of the failure of metaphysics and the more genuine power that it eclipses and represses. So Heidegger's thought then is an attempt, in my own words, is an attempt to dislodge an unusual and suppressed notion of being from the history of metaphysics. So it's an attempt to dislodge an unusual and suppressed, that the idea of a forgetting of being can be trans the Vergessenheit can be can be seen, argues one French philosopher as a as the language of repression. So it's not just been forgotten; it's actually been um, pushed down. So it's the dislodging of an unusual and suppressed notion of being from the history of metaphysics, and this involves involves I should say among other things a critique of being as presence, as actuality, and as being tied up uh, with the positive givenness or to the eminence and unassailable necessity of a particular being's actuality. To such conceptions, Heidegger opposes a notion of being that is shot through with nothingness, uh, withdrawal, reserve, and refusal, rather than presence. In a word, he means to show that, contrary to much of Western philosophical tradition, being in the eminent sense is not something positive. Being in the eminent sense is, rather, refusal. Or better, being refuses and gives itself as refusing. That is its essence. That is its essence. But what exactly does this refusal amount to? And if this essential refusal, the not of being, is really as negative as he claims, an absence that is forgotten, that is the forgotten true ground of pure presence, what work does it do? What work does this withdrawing do? Up to this point, the refusal of being has been viewed largely from the standpoint of metaphysics in terms of what refuses itself to metaphysical thinking, namely when being is not reduced to beingness or to the being of some primary being, which is an explanatory cause of everything that follows from that primary being. This is certainly part of what he means when he speaks of refusal as the essential occurrence of being. But this understanding um, does, not, does not cover the entirety of what he has in mind, I would like to claim. To put it bluntly, the refusal of being cannot be summed up in terms of what is refused to metaphysics, simply because the essential occurrence of being denotes a necessary self-concealment. In other words, refusal 
is intrinsic to being and not simply due to what metaphysics cannot grasp. Hiddenness or concealment is what is essential, what occurs essentially, but which constantly allows itself to be eclipsed by the unconcealed presence or, ac of or actuality of stuff in the world, things in the world. Moreover, it is only by virtue of this eclipse of concealment that beings appear as unconcealed as the unconcealed things they are. Concealment then is thus, let's be clear, concealment or hiddenness is thus not a fate imposed on the clearing by a blinkered metaphysical thinking. It is the very possibility of concealment. That's the more important point. It's not that metaphysics made a mistake along the way. The more important point is that concealment is the very possibility of something being unconcealed or showing up as meaningful or as usable. Okay. Having outlined now what Heidegger means by his alternative to metaphysical thinking, or better, his reflections on the essence of metaphysics and nihilism from within metaphysics, it is perhaps necessary to ask ourselves whether Heidegger's previously discussed reconception of being and nothing as one and the same, although not identical, um, the uncovering of the so-called forgetting of forgetting, of being as withdrawing, of inverting the hierarchy that exists between actuality and possibility, it is important that we ask ourselves whether this isn't <coughs> itself the greatest expression of metaphysical force. That is, perhaps the cunning of metaphysics is already operative in Heidegger's attempts to sketch the contours of this other way of thinking. Or perhaps Heidegger recognized the naivety of such a move in his encounter with Junger on the very impossibility of overcoming. And because of this, he committed himself to what I think we could call the quasi-metaphysical or almost the quasi-Kantian position that the human being cannot save itself. But we exist as if in this very possibility there is contained our salvation. However, one thing Heidegger does not address is the following issue. If we cannot find a way out of metaphysics and by extension out of nihilism, by means of our own volitional or philosophical agency, if we can no longer identify, criticize and take positions on nihilism because of the metaphysical subjectivism implied in position taking, and if we don't even feel that it is necessary to find our way out of metaphysics because no way exists in the first place, no way out exists in the first place, then metaphysics becomes, for him, an inescapable determination of the human being and, by extension, a necessary determination of his attempts to sketch the contours of something other than metaphysics. Yet Heidegger's alternative, poetic alternative of remembering or recollecting, could not recall anything if it were not for the absolute necessity of forgetting. Literally, there is nothing to recall nothing to experience or encounter in Heidegger's sense of nothing, not as the empty nothing. And if, for Junger, the possibility of recovering from nihilism, of crossing the line, depends, a kind of a type of, depends on a stoic voluntarism or a creative Gnostic purification with all the subjectivity implied in that, for Heidegger it resides in what he calls the pure thinkability of being as nothing. On this score, Perhaps it is Heidegger and not Nietzsche who is the last metaphysician of being, although metaphysics in a very particular sense. Thank you.
Thank you, Nile. Well, end of a long day, so I will try and keep my response as concise and brief as possible. But before I do so, I'd just like to thank the BSP for giving me the opportunity to respond to Nile's paper. Um, I first met Nile. We agreed 2006, couldn't figure out a date. So it's been when we were first doing our PhDs and it's, so this has given me an opportunity to re reconnect with them. And, um, I'd also like to thank James Hochter uh, for single-handedly organizing this conference. I did offer... I did. We'd obviously the executive to be at Executives don't matter. <laughs> I did offer my help, but he said, because I'm not a phenomenologist, I'm a hermeneutic philosopher, he said, I'll just end up screwing it up. So um, I, I just stood, stood back. But thank you, James. Um, I, in, all, in all fairness to James, I said, there's, I'm probably not going to be able to help him at all. And, and I think David, who's co-supervisor, co was nodding and says, yeah, I don't want to get involved with the conference organization. But James just jumped in and, and took care of it. So thank you. Excellent work. Um, okay, so being a hermeneutic philosopher, I always um, feel like I have to give an apology, especially because of the way in which I understand Heidegger um, usually ends up in controversy. Um, but I, it's going to be, the reason why is because I'm always interested in application, and that, in one word, is my question to Niall is, what application does Heidegger's way of thinking of nihilism and metaphysics, what concrete application or forms of engagement, or maybe perhaps regional hermeneutics. What arises from it? Because Heidegger is, of course, very hesitant, and he, he gestures at certain things. And I'm always tempted to try and make more uh, uh, something more concrete about it, and that's, of course, when I get criticism, because, in short, that kind of seeking application is a, is a form of metaphysics that Heidegger would, would certainly disagree with. Okay, so very quickly, um, keep an eye on time. My, my, my question to Niall is, is about application, and I'm going to sort of expand on that question in, in two parts. One is just sort of my own reflection on uh, Niall's very um, nuanced, a very impressive reading of Heidegger and Jünger, and it's going to bear out the ways in which I understand Heidegger in relation to more, perhaps more common themes within in philosophy. Uh, and then the second part will be looking at a certain aspect of the problem of metaphysics and nihilism from the point of view, instead of volition, but from the point of view of the subject, and see if that opens up another space in which we can talk about um, ap application. Okay, so um, once again, thank you, Nell, for, for that uh, very careful exposition. I'm very jealous in many ways because uh, you always have a very nuanced approach that's very attentive to a lot of the historical uh, relations that I think I'm historically autistic in many ways, so it, it's uh, it's very good to see. And I'd like to think that I am in agreement with your um, uh, your interpretation of Heidegger's construal of metaphysics and nothingness. But my my reflections might bear out some some differences that you would like to comment on. So there are just three points I'd like to um, alight upon as reflections upon um, application. The first one has to do with um, I guess return, what is returning to metaphysics? So what happens to metaphysics? Or how do we understand the tradition, the history of philosophy? Because Heidegger makes very grand claims about the history of philosophy. Since Plato, the question of being has been forgotten. And what I gather from what's been said in my own reading of Heidegger is that when we talk about the kinds of criticisms of metaphysics that Heidegger has, of the, of the tradition of the history of philosophy, they themselves are provisional. And they have to be provisional for a couple of reasons. And one of them has to do with Heidegger's concern for the way in which discourse operates. 
And in short, he's, he's very cautious about what we can call representational language. Of course, it's a concern of, of other philosophers, other post-structuralists as well. But there are, uh, Heidegger is concerned about the way in which we think philosophical concepts and language actually give us access to the thing that we think we're talking about being or reality. In fact, as he says, uh, and, and talking about Plato's uh, analogy of the cave, that the idea stands before being and being withdraws in that sense. So there's something ab about the nature of language that is problematic. It doesn't mean we get rid of it or jettison it. It just means we have to have a different relationship to how we understand what's going on in philosophical discourse. The other side to that, of course, is if Heidegger is making the historical criticism and he, and he adheres very much to this notion of, of historicity, the idea that our understanding is historically constituted and that part of that constitution is a retrieval of sources, how we interpret them, then this stance can't be transcendental, it can't be absolute, it has to be provisional according to what Heidegger recognizes is the problem uh, within the 20th century. And it is simply that the history of philosophy has been read one way and he's trying to show uh, another way in which it might or should be understood. Okay, so that that is one reflection, one point on which um, Heidegger's discourse on nothing in metaphysics matters to us as philosophers within the history of philosophy. Second point has to do with um, addressing what it means to have a glimpse of nihilism from within nihilism. That is, um, I think it's not just the idea that our, value, our values have been evacuated or that we have nothing to appeal to, but I think given our own historical period and how much there is um, problems with veracity, appeal to facts, of course, allegations of, of fake news, Part of that nihilism, at least I want to say, is the manner in which we think we have values, but of course the values that we appear, appeal to often are part of a very particular kind of discourse or very parochial. And it's not a kind of discourse that opens out. So it becomes, talking with others becomes very defensive. And so that to me indicates a kind of nihilism where you cannot have a common space, a public space of reason, as it were. Um, so catching a glimpse of that means uh, so that's one side of it. Another side of it might be catching a glimpse of what seems familiar to us and comfortable, and in fact is somehow, in Heidegger's terms, concealing our relationship to being. Technology is, is one of those things in which the availability, the disposability of technology, um, the, the efficiency of technology makes us want to say that technology is a great thing. We can be critical of it, and as long as we have a critical relationship to it, then we'll, ha we'll have a free relationship to it, and it'll be all right. Of course, um, and I will probably reveal my colors as a bit of a technophobe, uh, but not so much a Luddite, that when one of my giant peeves is, of course, trying to walk in a public space and I'm paying attention, and of course, someone who's texting isn't paying attention, and of course, if the onus is on me to move out of the way or, or move my bike or something, something, something is wrong about that. But from the perspective of the, of the uncanny, that's uncanny to me, but of course, from the person texting on the phone, or engaging with social media in the presence of having a conversation with someone, that appears absolutely normal. So there's another way in which we get a glimpse of nihilism from within nihilism. Now, the key point, of course, for Heidegger is that we get these glimpses, but we can't be tempted into, therefore, thinking that we've transcended nihilism in some way, or that we can occupy um, a position free from that. And the third and final point of this reflection is to say that it's to go to, um, to um, speaking to the act of remembering uh, the withdrawal of being. 
trying to read my own writing here. Okay, so the withdrawal, the withdrawal of being is, we got chicken scratches. Chinese, the Searle's Chinese room I'm thinking of now. Okay, so, um, so the withdrawal of being is not just something that, of course, can be thought of as, here's Heidegger being poetic and mystical, but I've always read the withdrawal of being as being very concrete existentially in the sense that what the withdrawal of being, the, con the way in which being conceals itself, brings to our attention, is our dependency on something other than ourselves. So, and this is gonna to touch upon the second part of, of my response that relates, relates to subjectivity. So in other words, um, we can be dependent in many different ways uh, on others. So Martha Nussbaum will talk about this in terms of the capabilities approach. Recur tries to do this with Heidegger himself in trying to mediate between Levinas and Heidegger by trying to show that there is an ethical side to Heidegger that can heed the being of others as it were. I tried to do this, this is my last comment about my own work, I tried to do this in relation to economics and land to try to show how Heidegger's uh, notion of ground and earth confirms a kind of classical theory of ground rent that leads to a very interesting economic practice called land value taxation. And then, of course, there is uh, Graham, Graham Harmon's work on objects which tries to emphasize the ontology of objects and how they're, they're hidden from us in some respect. Okay, moving on to the second part. Um, so application, I guess one way of understanding the question of application of the relevance of what Heidegger is talking about in terms of practices, another way to render that is how do we belong in the face of or within the withdrawal of being? And a lot of the talk, of course, uh, when you read Nietzsche and the discussion of nihilism is going to be on volition and will. And to be quite honest, I, I never know what to how to understand the concept of the will, um, whether it's teaching Kant or or Nietzsche. But, so the way I try to get at this, and this may be old hat for a lot of you, but I think it's worth reiterating even if it isn't, so please bear with me, is that while we might talk a lot about volition and, and willing concepts in, in philosophy through argumentation or whatever it might be, that the other side that's very important for Heidegger, of course, is this notion of the subject, that it's become something quite distinct in the modern era. I think someone who captures this very well is the hermeneutic philosopher um, after Gadamer, his name's Louis Dupre, and I'll just read this passage because it's, it's a, I think, a fantastic, clear passage of what's going on with the notion, the term, the subject, and its meaning. Dupre writes, the most decisive change in the way the self came to envision its role within the total order of being is symbolized in a strange reversal in the meaning of the term subject. Subject, the translation of the Greek hypokomenon, or what lies under something, had once named the most elementary level of being, for example, as in ancient Greek philosophy. In the course of the modern age, particularly starting with the Renaissance, it surprisingly came to stand for the ultimate source of meaning and value previously attributed to God or divine nature. And Dupre draws out all the permutations of this in his book called The Passage to Modernity. So if there is a form of application, it's going to involve the notion of a human agent who is not the human subject, or to go back to what Niall said, um, as the master, the ultimate source of meaning, the Herrschaft. Um, and just to throw, this is my last comment, um, to throw another angle on this notion of subjectivity, which might help in understanding past historical sources. Um, we don't have to concentrate so much on the will. Is there another way of, of thinking about human agency which might be absent of the will. Apparently, according to Alistair McIntyre, Plato and Aristotle had this, this kind of 
or they thought, they thought in this way. So McIntyre writes now, quote, another interesting passage. Um, for both Plato and Aristotle, reason is independently motivating. It has as its own ends, and it inclines, uh, sorry, it has its own ends, and it inclines those who possess it towards them. Even if it is also necessary that the higher desires be educated into rationality and uh, and, the bodily, and that the bodily appetites be sub subordinated to it. And, and he notes in contrast, for Augustine, whom McIntyre sees as at least, or perhaps inventing the notion of the will, or alighting upon it, intellect needs to be moved by the activity of the will. So then, so what McIntyre is noting is this bifurcation, whereas he's claiming that both Plato and Aristotle don't think in that, that uh, bifurcated way. So perhaps that might um, open up another way in which we can understand application. Okay, so um, hopefully, hopefully that's enough, and thank you for your time. Thanks, Todd. Um, Todd mentioned um, first met him at a Praxis and Freedom conference, so the the the, the application question is intimately tied to the question of praxis, which is essentially tied to acting well. So I, I think if we're going to start and talking about how we can understand the application of what Heidegger has to say or the concreteness, you could start, I think a, a bad philosopher would start and say, well, no, that's already metaphysical, so I don't need to say anything about it, but uh, that, that's, that's no longer enough. So a few things, let's start with the application and concreteness question. Um, I would say that what Heidegger is after is, I don't think this is always borne out in his philosophy, but I, I would go so far as to say the ontological question is not his sole interest. Uh, the real interest I think he has, and I, I, I stress that this is also, I'm, I'm unsure about how committed I am to this, I think his real interest is how we relate to things after we've gone through a reflection on the ontological question being as nothing, and a returning to the world and how can we reconceive our relationship to things and to others in the world in a way. So I mentioned yesterday to you uh, around 1928, Heidegger starts talking about metontology, this term he uses. And someone, I think someone mentioned metontology in, in your talk. Um, metontology for Heidegger is about how we must supplement fundamental ontology with a metaphysics of nature. How can we return to things? He actually gives examples of sexuality, gender, historical specification. So already the seeds, that, the seeds are there in Heidegger's philosophy for a proper return to forms of praxis, to forms of action which are immeasurable in terms of acting well and acting less well. Um, so I want to say that um, initially his philosophy is one of shaking the individual. So in phenomenological terms, there is always a mood, there is always an effective state which is triggered, which allows us to bring about a modification of perspective. And only on the basis of the modification of perspective can we actually start relating to things and other people differently. Um, unlike in the more phenomenological register, it's less a volitional achievement of the subject for Heidegger than something the subject undergoes. But thanks to this undergoing, what you have is a new comportment. 
how would I describe the application, the concreteness of that new comportment? I've just tried to sketch a few things while you were, you were saying it. Well, I would say that this new type of shaken comportment is a type of perspective we can get on the world in which we understand and relate to the world not as something separate from us, right? not as a tool we might use, but intimately related to who we are. I don't think we always encounter the world in that way, and I think he's trying to reorient us in that way. In this new comportment, then, I am sharing a world that is always beyond myself, and I am in the midst of things and other people and I'm experiencing, enjoying, and disliking the, connect the connectivity of things, he puts it. So what you have is pure phenomenology becomes phenomenological hermeneutics, as you know, right? With that, what he wants is a transformation of my affective, a transformation of my intentional state, a transformation of my linguistic state, and a transformation of my embodied relationship to the world. That also comes, the body is downplayed slightly, but, it, but it's also there. Now, so how do we bring about this perspective? I said there's a type of shaking, there's a type of um, modification of my perspective, which I undergo rather than actualize or achieve myself. But this type of modified perspective is also supplemented by a modification of my relationship to the language of metaphysics. Right? So how, how do the words I use affect and shape the way I encounter the world. So in this new modified state, I relate to the world not as separate from me, not as a tool of use. This word Heidegger uses, if you ever come across, benutzen. It's the bad word for him. It's like utility. I use the, I use the world as a tool, and he wants to stop using the world and individuals in the world as tools, as merely kind of my ends. So I would say that what he's trying to do with this blending of fundamental ontology and meta-ontology is he's trying to almost offer us an ethics of the truth of things. So, so it's, not an, it's not the truth of being that matters to him so much as an ethics of the truth of things and the connectivity of things. In the origin of the work of art, he talks about trying to understand the mutual exteriority of things. Right? So on the one hand, He's trying to get to an ethics of the truth of things that meets with a metaphysics of nature. So that's how fundamental ontology and meta-ontology can come about. So I would say meta-ontology is not necessarily about the world. Meta-ontology is about my relationship to things and people in the world. So it's not the hor I, I don't read it as the horizon of all horizons. I read it as a rela an ethical, and Lorenzo was saying this the other day, it's, it's not, not only an ethical relationship. But he makes it clear that metaontology, this metaphysics of nature, a type of empiricism that you find in Heidegger, needs to supplement and complement the fundamental ontology. The fundamental ontology, the being question, is not the only question in town for him. And I think his interest in things and the connectivity of things comes back in his reflections on art and the world and on earth in some way, right? So you know from the origin of work of art, he wants to talk about a thing. It's called a temple, or it's called Bamberg Cathedral, or it's called a pair of shoes, which indicate both what exceeds the thing below it and what exceeds the thing above it. But it's thanks to the thing that we can have a relationship to what 
exceeds the thing. Um, so what I've been calling here uh, an ethics of the truth of things, which I don't think you'd find Heidegger saying that, but I want to try and push it in that direction. I think this is predicated, the possibility of a relationship to things, the truth of things and, and uh, a metaphysics of nature, it's predicated for him on um, being uprooted from nature, being uprooted, being uprooted from nature, but only until I return to nature. And I think this is where he's deeply phenomenological, that the transcendental must be supplemented by an empirical account, an intentional psychological account, or an empirical uh, uh, scientific or scientific account. So the phenomenological isn't all that's the case. He needs to return to the world. And this is what I think he means by genuine nihilism. So genuine nihilism is about the truth of things and the truth of nature. It's not simply about the truth of being, although it most certainly always needs to relate to an understanding of being. Second, just a, a second point to the withdrawal of being in the forgetting question. I've, I've been trying to think about how one would talk about that concretely. Um, when he talks about nothingness, he most almost certainly talks about anxiety and death. Right? And in his lectures on Hulderlin, he talks very much about the withdrawal of being and he relates it to mourning. So the experience of mourning. So how can we experience something which is not there, but remains present to us? Right? And he uses the example of mourning and he says, in the loss of a loved one, the absent one is brought closer to me in a way that I've never experienced when they were present. So in terms of concretely trying to understand what he might mean by forgetting or the withdrawal of being, he uses concrete examples of death and mourning as ways as kind of indicators or markers to help us understand, but immediately says, however, we don't understand the nothingness better because we start with the example of mourning and death. We understand what mourning and death is because being is withdrawing, not the other way around. So th there's an ontological indicator which helps us relate to another existential ontological individual. Um, and I think that's what he means by genuine nihilism. The question of mourning, the question of being towards death, are his ways of talking about con a concrete phenomenological experience that will help us understand an ontological question. But the ontological question must always start with being, things, and return to things. So that's what I would say. Um, and I think largely the bolder claim I want to make, I didn't make in the paper, but it's between the lines. I think Heidegger is a philosopher of contingent facticity. And the upshot of that is metaphysics in a new sense. Not in the ordinary sense of metaphysics, and Heidegger is Husserlian. At the end of the Cartesian Meditations, you have that, re that reference by Husserl to, I'm not talking about a metaphysics in the ordinary sense, but metaphysics in the new sense. I think Heidegger is doing the very same thing. Heidegger is a metaphysician, but he's a metaphysician of contingent facticity, which starts with being, namely, Dasein is a thing, goes through Dasein to talk about Dasein's understanding of being, but always with the intention of returning to a world of things and reconceiving our relationship to things and other people. And that's, in the most eminent sense, that is about acting well, relating well to others and things, not as tools for use, not as things to be dominated or controlled, but things to be freed, things to be set free. So I think that's the best fist I can make of, of what's the application of Heidegger. He, he doesn't want application. But I, I, I think, 
I think there is a sort of impact that his philosophy allows us to think about. Thanks. Thank you. Uh, so now there's an opportunity for you, for you to... Uh...